How can mollusks teach us to build better homes? What can we learn from bumblebee democracy? And what do lawns and peacock feathers have in common? We'll answer those questions on Students of Nature with me, Biomimicry Benny. So it's me, Benny, as I just said. And this podcast is going to be about my biomimicry journey and detailing the just amazing world of biomimicry. So to get started on that, I'm going to have to tell you, well, some of you might be wondering what biomimicry even is. And lucky for you, I'm probably going to answer your question by the end of the episode, but debatable. What I do want to start with is one of those like classic aha moments I had when I was just a youngling. So me, 18 years old, going to college, loved biology. I loved AP biology. I just thought it was the most fascinating thing ever, and I didn't exactly know why until this one moment in freshman bio. And so freshman bio is this giant lecture course. There's like 300 people in the room with me. Professors just kind of going slide after slide. It's kind of a snooze fest. And they also have the recorded lectures, so sometimes you don't even show up to chorus and you just watch it on your laptop. And then for homework, we have all these, like, like one lesson is like 200 slides. And you have to look through all the slides and then find some sort of answer to do for your little homework and yada, yada. It's pretty boring. But I do remember this one slide that was about ATP synthase. And ATP synthase is this amazing enzyme that is basically how we get all of our energy. Animals, plants, bacteria, archaea, we can, dinosaurs, we can all owe our ability to eat food and turn that food into usable energy to this enzyme, right? So that sounds pretty exciting in itself. But what's even more exciting, well, at least for me, what's more exciting to me is how it works. See, long story short, I'll go long story short, it's basically a turbine. So it uses an electron gradient, blah, 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 fancy terms. But then the motor spins. It spins in circles like a water mill or a wind turbine. And when it spins, it creates energy. And it's able to use that energy to synthesize usable energy, stored energy that later our bodies can use to do all of our bodily tasks, like pee and poop. So, anyway, I was like, are you kidding me? I'm here sitting, and we have all these, like, human things, like wind turbines that we think are so cool and we think we invented by ourselves. And I learned right here on this slide that nature invented turbines, like, a billion years ago. Like, nature had the original invention, and I was like, holy crap, that's crazy. And then I had to go to the next slide, because I had, like, two more, 200 more slides to go that night. So that's a little bit of uh, my frustrations with that educational style. But also, that's where I got that aha moment. I was like, 
This is why I love biology. And at that point, I didn't know what the field of biomimicry was. Um, I didn't know the word, but I was understanding the world as someone who follows biomimicry does, which is we have so much to learn from nature. Like, we have all of these crazy, wicked problems right now, and we keep looking, trying to figure out for ourselves how to solve them. But the thing is, nature has solved many of these problems before, and it spent billions of years solving these problems. So we really can just look into nature and try to figure some of this stuff out. Bingo! I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, we have a bit of an issue because our business as usual society is kind of failing right now. Like, I'm not sure how much you keep up on the news, but stuff isn't going too great, right? The environment's not doing too great. I don't have to convince you that. You probably are aware of all these ecological crises that have begun to suffocate our world. So this initially led me to despair and continues to lead me to despair sometimes because it's hard to see past these entrenched systems that have gotten us into this mess. Our culture, for the most part, has failed to imagine alternative futures, alternative systems, healthier things that can provide care for people on the planet. But these systems do exist. Biomimicry is just one of them. We're not doomed to fail within our current political and economic reality. We can hold on to hope, but hope doesn't have to be this hopeless or this baseless prayer detached from action, right? It can, hope is a last resort mentality that we can use to fight for our collective futures. And within this glimmer of hope, we're going to start to become aware of some of these regenerative strategies that many humans have used for thousands of years. We're going to think global, act local, and most importantly, and the reason I'm here right now, and hopefully you're here, um, listen to me, is we're going to look at the earth, not just as a resource to be consumed, but as this endless library of knowledge that's been doing research and development for ne nearly four billion years. Many of the solutions to the wicked problems of the 21st century exist all around us. All we need to do is listen and learn. This is the ethos of biomimicry. Nature condi creates conditions conducive to life, and us humans are no exception. We have the ability to be regenerative, to be good stewards of the land and the earth. There's nothing particular about humans that is destructive. The only thing that is destructive are the systems that we create. So in order to change us, we need to learn deeply from nature. And there's no better place to start than Velcro. Today's episode is brought to you by Misinformation. Are you struggling to know who to trust? 
Do you read the news and just think, this ain't true? Do you really think you're getting blown away by the soothing voice of your favorite podcaster? If you think the answers to these questions are yes, then you're on to something. Nothing you hear is true. Just trust me, Miss Information. Snuggle up by my side. It's quite cozy over here. I can play your goddess and be your wildest dreams. Have your faith in me. Miss Information. And back to the show. So Velcro is widely cited as an example of biomimicry. And that's because it's kind of easy to explain. So I will explain easily. <laughs> Sorry, I make my love, myself laugh sometimes. Um, you'll have to get used to it. Anyway, there was a Swiss engineer. His name was, was George Demistral. And he had a dog. Like many of us, we have dogs. We like going on the walks with our dogs, and uh, he was having a good time. But the thing is, some little things were getting stuck to his dog's fur. And so he went and he looked at them, and there were seeds. There were burrs, more specifically. And so he went over, and I don't know if whether out of frustration or curiosity, he was like, oh, I'm going to look at these under my handy-dandy microscope. You know, because we all have microscopes and just take things to look under microscopes, as one does. So I'm guessing he was wondering why these were so sticky, right? They couldn't get them off his dog's fur. He takes them back to the home lab, and what he sees under the microscope is this incredible hook-and-loop structure. So this hook and loop structure was gave the seeds the ability to lock on to different objects and stick. And he actually took this knowledge and this strategy and he created Velcro. We all love Velcro, don't we? Great sound, great product. So this is a prime example of how one can look in nature, find some knowledge and apply it to some sort of problem that um, that humans have to solve. And this, in this case, the problem was getting things to stick to each other, which I guess was a problem back then. So there's a couple levels here that we can talk about. First of all, congratulations. Mr. Mistral, I don't know, maybe he was a doctor, I don't know. I don't know why I just gave him congratulations. Anyway, <laughs> so basically, this biomimetic thinking followed the form of nature, right? So he looked at the, the seed under the microscope, and he saw the form of the seed, the shape of it what it looked like. 
and he saw the hook and the loop. And he used that and he mimicked that form into his product. And this is one of the most common applications of biomimicry. Um, it's what you'll see cited most frequently. It's easy to understand. Another example is uh, wind turbines have been um, adapted based off knowledge of wh whale fins. So I'm not sure which whale exactly. I think humpback whales. They looked at the fins and wondered how they got so aerodynamic, and they actually had bumps on them. And these bumps somehow made the whales more aerodynamic, and some engineers took this knowledge and applied them to wind turbines to make them more efficient. That's another example of how form can be learned from in nature. The thing is, though, there are deeper levels of biomimicry. Because there are issues with Velcro, as amazing as it is. So Velcro, in order to create it, to make it, it has to follow a heat, beat, and treat system. So basically, you get a bunch of, make a bunch of petrochemicals, right? And you heat them up 2,000 degrees, and that's how you create it, mush it all together, and you're creating this synthetic material that, one, creates takes a lot of energy to create, right? And then second, what do you do with Velcro when you're done with it? You throw it in the trash. Where's the trash end up? Landfill. No bueno, not good. So these are deeper levels of thinking that we can apply to some of the solutions that we look at. Because nature has no landfills. Nature doesn't need 2,000 degree ovens to create products, right? This plant with the seeds that he looked at was able to create the sticky things without a huge oven. It just used the sun's energy. And then the seed was able to dis disintegrate naturally into the earth and its, its um, compounds are able to be broken apart and recycled by different microorganisms in the soil. And the same cannot be said of synthetic products like Velcro or other things. And this isn't a tirade against synthetic materials. It's just important to be aware of the consequences of creating products like this, right? And so if we want to live more in tune with the earth, we can learn how Nature creates products like these without all of these terrible consequences. Okay, so that's the Velcro example. I'm going to leave you today with that example and munch on it, munch on it all you want, because there are so many more examples. I could get carried away and keep talking about a ton of different examples, but it's probably just going to be paint splattered on the wall, unintelligible. So, in some future episodes, in the next episode, I'm, I have a conversation with Jamie Miller, 
who is amazing. I took a course with him, and you'll learn more about how he thinks about biomimicry and what he's done with it. We're also going to talk about, in another episode, how mollusks build homes. How do oysters build their homes, their shells? And how can we apply that to our home building? How do these differ? We'll talk about eventually growth cycles in nature. How can we model our economic growth after the growth cycles in nature? How can we compare our current infinite economic growth to infinite growth in nature? So those are a few episodes. Um, Another thing I want to make clear is biomimicry, it's a new field and it's very old. What I mean by that is kind of for our dominant Western culture, this is kind of a new way of thinking. But there are many traditional cultures around the world that have this kind of thinking ingrained into them. So as we kind of look to nature for solutions, we can also look to other humans who have been modeling nature for some time and realize that biomimicry is just a word that represents a philosophy. But as I mentioned with George de Mistral, who is Swiss, he didn't know what biomimicry was, right? He didn't speak English. So it doesn't matter too much if people are using this word. What really matters is that we're using more regenerative methods and, again, looking at the earth as more than just a resource. And biomimicry gives me a lot of hope, or this whole regenerative ethos, because it's easy, as I said at the beginning, to just fall into despair. And, I mean, I've been doing that a lot recently. Um, But this kind of brings me back and, and gives me some hope that we can really figure things out, that we can create a more mutualistic relationship with each other and with the earth and we can change kind of the the underlying assumptions that we have. There's a lot of assumptions and preconceptions of nature that are really outdated. Survival of the fittest, for example, has really spread throughout our society to represent so many things. And what how we actually interpret Darwin's survival of the fittest is sort of a bastardization of what he actually said. I'll get into that later as well. So, I'm going to leave it there. I'm looking forward to flipping through the textbook of life with you all and not just looking at slides in the textbook. We're going to really we're going to really dive deep into things. And I'm going to dive deep into my curiosities and hopefully I'll be able to share the excitement with you all. And you'll join me for an exploration as my fellow students of nature. <laughs>